We are good. Thank you for asking. When I went downstairs, she was so disappointed. She wanted to, to say hi to you all. So thank you for popping back on. We heard you made a killer basket at basketball camp. Is that true? Yes. Yes. And did all the girls cheer for you? Yes. Oh my gosh. When I heard that story, my heart filled right up. Yep. How did you feel when that happened? So proud. So proud. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that is amazing. Great. Yeah. Is this a sense? Yeah, these are my friends. Wow. They're all writers too. Oh my God. <laughs> we like reading about you. Aww. Hello and welcome to Table for Five with no reservations. Take a seat at the table for a fresh, sweet, salty, tart, and pleasantly bitter conversation. Hello and thank you for taking a seat at the table. Today we have a special guest joining us, but I have the usual suspects sitting with me today. Tabitha Cabrera. Hello. Jamie Ramos. Hi. Kim McIsaac. Hey. Rachel Flanagan. Hey, everybody. And I'm Jennifer Dunn. Joining us today, we have Mia Corella. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here with you guys. We were so excited when you agreed to do this with us. We've um, been fangirling over you for quite a while. So we Aww. are interested in hearing all about you, your beautiful daughter and family. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, I'll start with I'm awkward. So apologies in advance. <laughs> I'm awkward to too. <laughs> Welcome to the table. Yeah. Welcome to the table. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. I'm a writer and a stay-at-home mom of two kids. My daughter, Evelyn, is 11 and my son, Weston, is six. I've been married for just about 18 years to my husband, Fred. We live in Pennsylvania and we have a sassy cat named Frankie Heck. So. I don't know. Do you guys know where that reference is from? Frankie Heck? Oh, oh um, yeah. The, from the middle. Yes. yes the middle. The oh, yeah. On the ABC. Yep. Yes. I love that show. I that, do too. Oh, my God. Yeah. Me and my husband. It's like so relatable. Evelyn named her. <laughs> That's yes. so funny. Oh, it's a girl. Yes, it's a girl. Yeah, yeah Frankie. Frankie. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Frankie is the mom on the show. And Evelyn loved that show. So she named our cat after her. That's cute. Oh, I love I that know. show too. Crazy cats myself. <laughs> All right, so some interesting things. You've written two books. Well, I have one a book that I, I published that was based on a blog post that I'd written um, to the mom struggling to hold her sh together. I don't know if I can say Love that it. on the podcast. Love it, yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I did self-publish that on Amazon. And I was published in an anthology about surviving pregnancy without losing your mind. So mm -hmm. I, I had a little um, essay in there that was published, but it was an anthology of many different parenting bloggers. Amazing. Amazing. I love the first one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. So can you tell us what led you to doing this crazy world of blogging and social media and all the things sure I never thought I would end up here it, it was um <laughs> not a direct uh, route I actually started as a middle school counselor uh, many years ago that was my career path and then I had my daughter Evelyn who I guess we'll talk about more later my experience with her she does have disabilities and multiple medical issues after I had my son who is five years younger than Evelyn we found out that he had one of the same medical issues that Evelyn does a congenital heart defect and so after dealing with everything with Evelyn for, you know, the five years and then having my second child and realizing that he also had the same medical issue, it was obviously very overwhelming. And I started writing just to kind of, ex you know, express my feelings and kind of go through what it was like to be a mom of kids with medical issues and things like that. And I wrote this essay 
And on a whim, I decided to submit it to be published on HuffPost and The Mighty. And it was actually picked up to my surprise. They both wanted to publish it. And after that, I was like, oh, that was cool. And my grandmother actually said to me, oh, this is great. Maybe you'll keep writing. And I said, well, what else do I have to say? I have nothing else to say. But it turns out I have a lot to say. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I kept up with the writing and I started my blog, thismomwithablog.com. And I have a Facebook page where I write about all things motherhood, but there's a lot of focus on raising a child with disabilities and medical issues. Yeah, I saw that you said, you know, you became a a stay-at-home mom. Doesn't pay well, but you said (laughs) stay-at-home, you know. Was that choice because of your children's disability or did you just kind of slide into being, I don't mean just, I Jamie is a stay-at-home mom and I always say, I couldn't do it. So hats off to you, ladies. That's a lot more work than leaving and going and sitting in my office by myself. (laughs) I actually was on maternity leave with Weston when I started writing. And that's not why I decided to resign from counseling, but it was just, you know, with my hands full with both the kids at the end of my maternity leave, I just decided this was a good time to transition out of working full time. And that's when I made that decision. But in the meantime, I I picked up with the writing. And again, it's my writing is more of just like a hobby and a community building kind of thing right now. Love it. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your beautiful daughter? Sure. Before I identified as a special needs mom or a disabilities mom, I was a medical mom. As I said, she was born with a congenital heart defect, and we actually found out that she had a heart defect while I was still pregnant with her. I think it was 22 weeks. It was our anatomy scan. We discovered that there was a structural defect with her heart, and it was, you know, like jumping in with both feet right then, like full speed ahead, parenting. We started meeting with pediatric cardiologist and going and touring different hospitals. We had to change where my prenatal care was going to be because we knew we needed to have like a level three NICU at the hospital just in case there was any problems when she was born. So everything started even before she arrived. And then when she was born, she was born in respiratory distress. So she was immediately, you know, whisked away and intubated and brought to the NICU, and then they transferred her the same day to cardiac intensive care unit at a children's hospital. Mm. So um, she was hospitalized for the first 66 days of her life. Mm. Yeah, she had a a rough start. And we all did, I guess, you know, that was that was my first child, you know, our introduction to parenting, my husband and I and, you know, she stayed in the hospital, she was only four pounds when she was born. So they had Mm. to have her in the isolate to gain weight because she needed to have an open heart surgery, but she was too little to have the surgery. You know, so we went through all that. When she was discharged, she was almost like nine and a half weeks old. And we were home for only a few weeks before we started early intervention services with her because we already knew that something was not right. She was already developmentally delayed, even at her you know, young age. And a lot of that we attributed to being in the isolate and being, you know, through all the medical trauma and everything. But we wanted to, you know, with the hospital's help, they hooked us up with the services and we started right away. Was Um, she early? She was only two weeks early. Oddly enough, she presented as a preemie. Everyone thought she was a preemie, but she was born at 38 weeks. But I think part of her small size was because of her heart and how it was not functioning properly. So she wasn't, you know, gaining enough weight. I remember when early intervention came to the house when she was 
about five months old to evaluate her. And one of the biggest things that stood out to me besides, you know, just being delayed with her motor skills and things like that was that she didn't make eye contact. Mm-hmm. And that was like a big warning flag, you know, obviously, you know, cause babies are supposed to make eye contact with their mothers. And when you feed them, they're supposed to gaze into your eyes. And she didn't do that. And she didn't track objects or anything like that. So I was very concerned. It was even in that evaluation that I straight out asked them if they thought she had autism, because I knew, you know, that was one of the signs of, of autism. And I didn't know, I'm like, why isn't my baby making eye t- contact? And they obviously were not able to answer the question at that time, but they, it turned out that she had a vision issue. She has a brain-based visual impairment called cortical visual impairment. So it, it doesn't affect her eyes. Her eyes are healthy and normal. She does have astigmatism, so she wears glasses, but it's how her mind takes in visual images and processes them. It's different, and she has to kind of be taught in a whole different way than typical kids would pick up visual information. So that was one of her big, her big things. Uh, what age was Evelyn diagnosed with autism? Oh, she, no, my daughter does not have autism. She oh, doesn't. she doesn't. It's, it's very complicated. There's no simple answer. Okay. Um, she, she's developmentally delayed in all areas. It's kind of because of her traumatic birth, you know, the not, not breathing at at birth, she does have a small brain injury. So that may be part of the reason she's developmental delayed. She also has the brain-based visual impairment, cortical visual impairment. So it affects how she takes in information visually. So it affects her learning in all areas. Okay. Uh, you know. I think I saw autism because you were saying that's what you thought when um, she was five yeah. months old. Yeah, and that's couldn't what do I initially this. thought. Like she yeah. never did get that diagnosis because, you know, one of the first you know, things that we noticed was the lack of eye contact and the not connecting in that way. And, and I didn't know. Um, so that was, that was one thing I was aware of at, the, at that time. And so I asked about that. Um, but she never did get a, an autism diagnosis. One of the pieces that you wrote, all the things they said she wouldn't do, the walking, the sitting, the holding the bottle, the feeding herself. And you said she grabbed that bottle <laughs> and just went for it. It's so, so she's always sort of stepped ahead of everything they thought she wouldn't do. She, you know, she's still delayed. She, um, and the things did not resolve themselves, obviously. Like we, you know, I kept, you know, this was another thing I was thinking is, I recently wrote about my son finishing kindergarten and I was thinking about how, you know, for parents of kids with special needs, a lot of times we're, we're looking for them as well, if they get caught up by kindergarten, you know, and I know Kate wrote a lot about that in her book about Cooper. And that's what we kept thinking. Okay, well, we're going to get her all these services. She's going to get caught up and, you know, by kindergarten, she'll be right on par with her peers, but it, it didn't happen. And she's, you know, she's made so much progress, you know, in every way. And she's always just a fighter and resilient. And she's always, you know, pushing forward, but we still, there's still a lot of, obviously a lot of gaps and delays that we're working with. And, you know, it's difficult, but she's a, she's a tough cookie. I can relate to your um, birth story pretty vividly because my son was, I didn't, he didn't have a heart condition, but he was four and a half pounds, 21 days in the NICU. I was in ICU. That trauma that's built around that kind of birth experience is interesting when then too, you go through like an autism diagnosis or like those other processes are kind of similar in that medical capacity. The trauma associated around that type of birth experience is kind of floats, especially my son was my first baby too. So 
it's like, and he, he was a preemie six weeks early. And so um, all of those things around people being involved in your lives, because we had a social worker who came from the hospital right immediately, like he was one month old, and we had people in our house already checking his development, you know, all of that stuff provided by the hospital. It's like you always have people in your life in the parenting aspect, you know, people coming into your home, which is great, but it's also like not the regular track for people to have providers coming into your home immediately, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I know. Like when Evelyn was hospitalized for so long and that, you know, her being my first child, I really didn't know how to be a parent. Like I, this yeah. is my first experience. So I kind of felt like she belonged to the doctors and the nurses, mm-hmm. you know, and that she like, we had to like ask, can we touch her? Can we fold yeah. her? You know, and that, that was such a crazy, surreal start to parenting. And it is traumatic and it stays with you. And mm-hmm. I remember the first appointment, like his checkup after he was released from the hospital, I was looking out the window at the hospital and holding him. And it like, str- I started to cry in the doctor's office, but it struck me that it was the first time that I had really like held him without cords and like nurses intervening and things beeping around. And it like hit me like a wall of bricks, you know, cause it is like, you need permission to kind of be around your baby and you just yeah. want to like pick them up and snuggle them. So yeah, fascinating. It was a rough start, but, um, you know, I'm glad we've, we've gotten to where we are today. And she, yeah, she has, um, met a lot of expectations that we weren't sure she ever would goals that we never knew if she would reach and you mentioned Jen you talked about um, her walking would she ever walk that was a big concern because she didn't take her first independent steps until she was 30 months old and she I mean now she's walking she's playing Miracle League baseball we got her involved in a basketball camp this summer oh yeah Um, so that's that was an exciting adventure but you know she, we still she has physical therapy at school and privately but she's working hard and making improvements all the time and as far as her health like with her heart what what can they do for her is there an ongoing treatment congenital heart defects are never cured but they can be repaired hers affects her pulmonary valve so when she was younger when she was eight months old they put in an artificial pulmonary valve into her heart so it was it was a tiny valve and the plan was for as long as she could keep that valve in as she grew and hopefully that you know the valve wouldn't grow with her because it was artificial but as long as she could tolerate it shortly after she had that place probably within the the next year it started to close up again to kind of calcify and shrink up So she's had to have some catheterization procedures to stent open that area of her heart. And we're right now monitored yearly. We go back, um, we actually go to Boston for her heart procedures and and checkups, but we go back this December and they're going to check again. And at some point she will need another intervention. We're hoping that the technology will be improved enough that she could get a new valve through a catheterization, but she may have to have another open heart surgery at some point, but it will be lifelong monitoring. Luckily, it doesn't impact her. There's no physical restrictions or anything like that. That's what I was going to ask about. So with the basketball camp and all that, like, how is it now with her stepping out into the world and doing more stuff like that? How do you feel about that? How does she feel about that? I know a lot of our kids deal with anxiety a lot of us deal with anxiety. How is it doing stuff like like the basketball camp and Miracle League? So Miracle League, she's been doing for a couple of years and there was no anxiety with getting involved in Miracle League because we knew 
you know, all the other kids had disabilities too, or delays. And Evelyn was, you know, welcomed with open arms and we knew all the other parents and families got it. And, you know, so we, we kind of walked right in there and just found a loving community. Now going into basketball camp, I was very nervous because it was a traditional basketball camp for girls entering grades three through nine and Evelyn's entering fifth grade even though she's entering fifth grade her physical skills are not on par with a fifth grader so and she's never had any formal basketball you know training so I was so nervous I had I reached out to one of the coaches beforehand and just said listen my daughter has disabilities I didn't get into details I just said she has physical delays but she loves basketball can we do this and he said we will make it work we'll make this a positive experience for her so I was like great. This is awesome. Evelyn's going to be so thrilled. But at the same time, I was so anxious because at school, she's in a small group classroom. She has a one-to-one aid. People are always watching her. They know her IEP. Going into this basketball camp, it was like clean slate. You know, all they knew was that brief statement I said, my daughter has disabilities. And they were like, okay, we'll take it from here. And it was okay. It was great. It was great. And it, it was probably one of the best decisions I made for her. Because her, yeah, her confidence coming out of that week was just amazing. Like, and I did write a post about this on her last day of camp. I went to walk her in and I was going to sign her in. And she, at the door, she stopped and she looked at me and she goes, you know what, mom, I got this. You don't Uh have to walk me in. (laughs) Amazing. And so I was like, oh, okay, okay. And so and she walked in on her own. And at the end of camp, one of the coaches sent me a little video of Evelyn shooting a basket and all the girls cheering her name. And she made the oh. shot. And it was just like the tears in your eyes moment. Like mm. that was, it was just wonderful. So I was glad, I was nervous that I took that risk and like kind of let her go out there into the traditional setting but it it was a great decision it was it like just like a couple hours a day like how it was an all-day camp for it was for Monday through Thursday it was nine to three so it wasn't like an overnight or anything like that but it was like a school day so they did like skills and you know drills and then they had lunch and then did some like game play in the afternoon and and yeah she can't keep up with the other girls like 100% the same way that they all can and her visual impairment affects that as well because with everyone running around and the ball coming at you, you know, it's a lot of visual information to take in, but they were able to work with her and, you know, kind of follow her lead and make her feel included. And it was, it was amazing. That is like, to me, that was like, this is what inclusion is. This is what inclusion feels like. It was, it was a great experience. So I think you Uh might've gotten lucky with that coach or whomever you spoke to, because it's not always that, you know, we had some rough goes with activities and then went back to the same place, but got a different coach. It's been fantastic. So I really think it's the person on the other end that's willing to kind of just take a step back and go, okay, I'm going to let these kids try this stuff. I a hundred percent agree. And it's also the makeup of, of the kids in the camp too, that they were willing to have an open mind and open, you know, heart to include her. But yeah, you're absolutely right. And so, and that's why I had those anxieties because we know that's true, you know, Mm -hmm. as parents of kids with, with disabilities, like we know that it doesn't always work out perfectly the way you want it to. But in our case, I'm, I'm very grateful that I found a, an organization that did work with us. So well, for I me, the that. kids are always the scariest part. I'm always so afraid of kids being mean to my son. I'm like, yes. Ah. So that's amazing. And it, I, it's such a good opportunity for the kids too to learn from your daughter and learn 
to be inclusive and that it's really not that hard. Yeah, that actually, that occurred to me too. Like afterwards, I'm like, you know what? That's how we change the world, right? You know, (laughs) letting our kids teach the world how to be. Maybe the world wasn't created for kids like ours, but our kids are going to change the world. Love that. Yeah, I talked um, in a post about the, you know, I, I had some faith in the younger generation. I took my daughter to an amusement park and all the kids are working on their summer breaks there. And I just said, she has autism. Do you have a past? This kid was just this young kid. He was, I swear he was 14 sitting behind the counter and he gave her a wristband and all these young kids that worked the rides, as soon as they saw her wristband, they just immediately kind of gave me that nod, let her in. It wasn't the, you know, that sometimes you get from people, right? Even mm-hmm. from adults that are there that are supposed to facilitate this stuff. So yeah, that does make all the difference. Absolutely. Well, and I think um, that's a, a big part of why we all do what we do is because some people just don't know. They're not exposed to it. They don't know how to act. They get nervous and uncomfortable and feel like the more we share and the more people read and see and experience and have exposure to, you know, all different kinds of people, disabilities, backgrounds, whatever it is, the more comfortable people get. Where before it was like, obviously my daughter's 26. So when she was diagnosed 24 years ago, people didn't even know what autism was. Now you say autism and people at least have a idea. People didn't know. I feel like we have come a long way. We obviously have a lot more work ahead of us to do, but it's just in the past you know, since she's come into being diagnosed and that was in 1998 to now, it's such a difference. Yeah. And Jen, I know you said your daughter's 12. Yeah. yeah. Eve- and Evelyn's 11. So as we're talking about worrying about how other kids are going to treat our children. Now, my daughter, your daughter, they're at this very, you know, crucial age with social development with, mm-hmm. you know, where they're very aware of what other people think and kids are very aware of each other. So this is a, this is a very anxiety producing time watching them grow up into adolescence and get ready for middle school. My daughter is only entering fifth grade because we actually had a repeat fourth grade last year, but yeah, it's a whole new ball game when you get up there in the years. Mm-hmm. The worst time in my life. I couldn't even oh understand. yeah. Well, and as kids get older, the differences grow like you it's like when a three-year-old's throwing a fit on the floor that's not uncommon for a neurotypical three-year-old either you know but as they get older and bigger then it's a wider gap you know and it's replaced with things if if there isn't conversations about this stuff then kids um you know take it as weird or mean or you know like different labels instead of you know understanding what's happening um, type of thing yeah. and I find a lot at like the stage of the game for us because my daughter's nonverbal so obviously it's a little bit more difficult because she can't talk to somebody to, to you know or someone asks her a question she can't answer um, and people just don't really know how to like navigate that we don't get like the stares and stuff that we as much I mean obviously if something's happening like a meltdown or something obviously then we would but just in general but it's almost like people would just play alongside her be alongside her not really acknowledge her and I know I don't blame anybody like it's not I'm not saying it in a resentful way because it's confusing she's an adult size but like cognitively she's much younger than what her physical age is and then she has the nonverbal aspect so she can't really even say like she can't even ask somebody something but I do I notice her sometimes like when we were just on vacation and she was in the pool and she's watching these other kids play and she's watching them but like they're just 
they're not not doing anything wrong anything mean you know they're three boys they're not but like they don't acknowledge her either so it's like I feel like we've come because before I feel like we would have gotten the stairs and like you know I don't feel like people are uncomfortable with her being there as we experienced in the past but people just don't know how to you know and they're just kind of doing their thing not even noticing her and believe me she's very noticeable because even though she's nonverbal, she's not quiet <laughs> <laughs> but you know she doesn't know as much as like maybe like Kaya would like want to play with the kids and like that would like upset her like my daughter's not upset by it because she doesn't really grasp that you know she's longing for that from these people but like you could kind of just see her like looking mm-hmm. almost like I don't know like obviously I don't know what goes through her head if she maybe she don't want to play with them at all maybe she's like why are you guys here you know, <laughs> like, oh, let me have it to myself but I feel like you know children are coming along that's another another concern and anxiety you know that I have is with Evelyn developing meaningful friendships you know and meaningful you know deep relationships with people she is speech delayed so she she's conversational you know she talks she can communicate verbally but she can't have the same kind of conversations that a typical 11 year old would have you know she wouldn't be sitting like in the cafeteria talking about you know something like really deep like she um you know I think she's more she understands more receptively than she can express expressively and so I worry about that you know too like wondering if that's going to inhibit her making some meaningful friendships moving forward you know I was going to ask you how she interacts with her peers and I asked because our daughters are pretty close in age and you know my daughter doesn't get the social cues of things really you know Mm -hmm. so a lot of times she just will follow along with what the kids are doing and I noticed at uh, gymnastics one night one of the, the kids is like why is she doing that why is she following this and she's not answering this and one of the little girls and they don't know she's autistic but one of the little girls is like she's in our class and she's our friend just this just this happy little girl who <laughs> kind of all of a sudden made it okay you know what I mean yeah so it's that interacting where she doesn't really understand how to interact you know she'll mm-hmm. just kind of insert herself into the you know hey I'm here <laughs> Um, Yeah, I think Evelyn also probably wouldn't know how to like, you know, break into a conversation like that. She loves to be around people. She, she just loves school. I'm so grateful for that. And she's happy to be around other people. But I feel like she's often an observer, you know, and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it would take, you know, other people or an adult to help pull her into the mix more. So I feel that way about Seeley too. There's something about your receptive language being in such a way that you can understand if there's something going on that you're missing. Like Celie has this draw, but then suddenly she'll just go in and drop like a mermaid bomb. Like they're doing Legos and she interjects herself and then it's something totally unrelated. And then if they, they take the bait, so be it. She'll sit there and do that. But if not, then she's on her way. Like, okay, yeah. peace. I'm going to go find somebody else that I can chat with. Yeah. yeah. We have that with my son too. He's very social and loves to be around people, but in like overstimulating situations or, you know, he didn't sleep or whatever, he completely loses his language. And so kids will try and to engage with him and then he's not having any of it. Um, even though he's like highly social and wants to be around kids, he kind of is like, no, thanks right now <laughs> I like to do it my way my son's usually like I like to do it my way or something but yeah. me I was going to ask you like 
part of that, like we, I think we talked a little bit about why you started writing, but do you feel like that's your big motivation when you write about Evelyn is like, because you want people to know what she's like. I think a lot of us start just because we're sick of trying to explain our kids. So it's like, here, I'm going to write about her so you can learn or what was your motivation in writing about her? Um, that's exactly it. That's, that's how I got started. And well, the first article I wrote was about what it means to be a heart mom. And so I just, I felt like no one understood where I was coming from and what it was like. And people, you know, even my family, you know, besides my husband, people that weren't in my home didn't know what it was like to day to day raise a child with these medical issues um, or whatever. And I wrote that just kind of like, you need to know that we feel like this. You need to know that this is what it's like. And as I wrote more and more, I felt like just kind of raising awareness and getting that out. And I've always kind of felt like I've had to fight for Evelyn. And I think we probably all have felt the same way with our own, with your own children. And the, and the big shift, honestly, was when we were getting ready to enter kindergarten and we sat around that IEP table and had her, you know, evaluation report read and all that. It was at that point that I realized I really have to be vocal for Evelyn to advocate for who she is and not just what she appears on paper and in test scores and, and reports because there's so much more to her. So, you know, that was a huge motivation in, in writing a lot of what I have written. And then I find the reaction from other parents is just so, you know, appreciative and supportive that I feel like I'm letting other people know they're supported and not alone, but I'm also receiving that support too. Like some, when I write something, I write out of, you know, passion and emotion. I, that's when I feel like I do my best when I'm, when I'm feeling emotional about something mm -hmm. and then when I get those comments back like I needed to hear that or I went through this and it helps me and so it's kind of like a a back and forth relationship between my audience my readers and and myself I think that's a really big misconception about special needs parenting is that people think that you automatically become a part of a community but you don't it's incredibly isolating and even within the special needs community like your daughter has medical needs developmental delay stuff like that it's with each one of those it's like so isolating in its own way so I think that's why we all write and I think that's why we all love your writing is because we can all relate and it's like oh yeah there's other people out here dealing with this stuff so we're grateful for it <laughs> thank you so much and and the same for you guys like I love I love reading your posts and I've been really connecting to the Kaya stories with as she's getting older now, you know, and all of you guys, I appreciate it so much because that's what we need as moms in this position. We need each other. Yeah. And we're, you're saying about connecting with your audience, um, you know, Kaya's 12 and um, I, I'm very respectful when I speak about puberty and I don't get into a lot of stuff, but I've spoken about it and a lot of, you know, moms will message me like, how do you get her to wear a pad and how do you, you know, do all these things and it's like you kind of instantly bond with somebody it's like you know Kimmy has an older daughter so I'm you know I'm often looking to her at things that Alyssa's done and it's kind of like people yeah. are curious but it's just not something you kind of randomly ask a stranger about so it's yeah. interesting to watch the you know the progression of it as she gets older and what you know people really dive into you had mentioned your son was also born with the same heart condition um, how is he doing and how does it affect him? Well, he was born with a congenital heart defect, but a different type. So his heart defect is just being monitored. So he is doing very well medically. We just go um, every two years for a cardiac um, follow-up for him. And the, the underlying condition 
just to make this all make sense a little bit more, the reason both my kids have congenital heart defects is they have a genetic syndrome called allergial syndrome, which is it's hard to explain, but basically it's inherited. My husband has this syndrome and it affects different organ systems in someone's body. Primarily, it usually affects livers, but in my children, they both were affected in their hearts. Mm. My husband did not have a heart defect or anything like that. So we really didn't understand how much it could vary within one family. So... So were you concerned about it? Maybe not the heart because he didn't have those issues, but were you concerned that perhaps it would be passed down or did you not know prior? We, we knew that it, it could be a possibility, but because my husband's symptoms and the way he was affected was so mild, we just assumed that it would be the same within a family, but it was, you know, the heart defect was much more severe than you know, we realized you know, could happen. And then how did you find out he had it too? Did you find out before he was born? My son, we actually, when I was pregnant with him, I had all the the fetal echocardiograms and everything. Everything was normal. There was no signs that anything was wrong. And after he was born, he had a heart murmur. And then they sent us for further testing. And that's, you know, when we found out that he had, it's just, he has peripheral pulmonary stenosis. So it's like the pulmonary branches are just a little bit more narrow than they should be. But he, luckily it's just, you know, mild to moderate and we're just monitoring that. How's her relationship with her brother? Do they have like- Um, Typical um, (laughs) sibling relationship. They annoy (laughs) each other a lot, but Weston, it's adorable because he is five years younger than her, but he is very protective of her and he helps Mm. her a lot. Like because of um, her visual impairment, like she, I couldn't say, you know, go upstairs and grab my glasses off the counter like because she wouldn't be able to find the glasses on the counter because of the visual clutter and so like Weston would go and I'll do that for Evelyn or whatever something like that um that's really he, sweet yeah he's oh, sweet. he's a very kind boy he it's it's very interesting to watch the dynamic between a, a special needs child and their sibling it's it's really awesome I'm sure, and you guys know that too mm-hmm. so. so I end up writing about a lot just as my daughter's getting a little bit older she's younger um, but the way she's, I can see how she's being raised to be like kinder and help more helpful. I mean, she's still sassy and will fight with her brother, <laughs> but at the core of it, she like checks on her brother and it's just like the sweetest thing. And it's like, I don't know. I'm very grateful. They have each other. And part of that. So I was going to ask you, this is a question we've all answered before, but how do you feel having Evelyn as your daughter has changed you and what's the, the best of you that's come out from being her mom? It's changed me in so many ways, like, and I'm so grateful for it. I think everything has been positive. She has just changed my perspective on life. She's made me so much more open-minded and a stronger person, you know, wanting to advocate for her and speak up for her. I think if I were a school counselor now, I think I'd be a much better counselor now that Mm -hmm. since she's entered school and I've now have been going through this as a parent. Um, I think it would have, you know, affected me as an educator differently, because when I was working in the school system, she hadn't entered school yet. So she was just in in daycare. And, and I didn't really know what it was like to have a a child with an IEP or anything like that Mm -hmm. and going through um, school. So I think, I think she's just helped me become a better person and a better advocate in all areas. Would you ever think Mm -hmm. about going back to that career? I think about possibly going, getting back into some form of advocacy. I feel like, you know, we know how hard it is to sit on our side of the IEP table and, 
I feel grateful that I have a public school background that I used to work in a public school system, even though it was in a different state than where we live now. But I know some of the special education laws and I know some of the procedures and how things go. And I feel bad for parents who don't have any experience and go to the table and just say, okay, okay, okay. And not know what they're entitled to and what, you know, what is available for their child. So sometimes I think about going into some kind of advocacy to help other parents. We just interviewed um, Amanda DeLucas and Kirby Morgan. They have an advocacy page, but they also do it for a living. They're master IEP coaches. Mm -hmm. And I think the best thing I took away from it uh, was you do not have to sign that IEP right then and there. And it's like you said, as a parent, I, I know for myself in kindergarten, I was very overwhelmed. I mean, I didn't even know what IEP stood for. <laughs> you know, you're just thrown into this whole thing. And, you know, it's exactly like you said, you're going to the table and you have no idea what your child is entitled to. And it is very, very overwhelming. And I think people forget as moms or dads sitting at that table, those are our babies. It's our children. You know, it's not just a number on a page. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I'm still navigating it. And, you know, even with my background, I've struggled all, you know, all along and still struggling to this day, like making sure we're getting what she needs and we're, she has the best placement that that's right for her. And it's an ongoing fight. And she's in public education. She is. Yeah. It's excellent. So well, that was my whole heart. I really do. I feel that because that I've thought that many times public school is the most challenging thing for me personally in the uh, this realm of advocacy for our kids and I'm an attorney by profession and so I like can read forms I can understand laws and that kind of stuff but it is seriously like a mind-blowing experience to be sitting there you know doing all of that stuff it's so so incredibly hard emotionally just challenging. It's an emotional roller coaster. We've, I mean, there's been countless meetings, you know, since Evelyn mm-hmm. has started getting ready for kindergarten up through now entering fifth grade. And I've cried at some and I've left feeling confident from some. And, you know, it's, it's all over the place. And all I know is no matter how I leave, I'm emotionally drained. I'm like done mm-hmm. for the rest of the day. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. yes. clear my calendar. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me <So>. too. <laughs> I, I have cried many a times after yeah. IEP meetings and or dealing with the public school. <laughs> you say clear your calendar. I'm like, somebody get me a cocktail. Because I've had enough of this day. <laughs> yeah, no, canceled. It's all canceled. It's just, the rest it's in general, like, like putting our kids out there, finding people that will, are willing to help our kids or schooling options in general it's just not simple at all it's it's hard no yeah it's so challenging but I'm glad that we have each other that we can (laughs) talk about with this stuff yes this terrible terrible well Mia we are so thankful that you joined us tonight where can we will put some links in but where can everyone find you the best place to find me would be Facebook. My page is just Mia Corella. I also have a website, thismomwithablog.com. It is not currently up to date. I will be updating that soon, hopefully by the time this podcast comes out. And I'm also on Instagram and my handle is at Mia Corella Writer. Amazing. Hey. Well, thank, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, great chatting with you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for tolerating my awkwardness. No. <laughs> 
I say that all the time. I say to people, I'm sorry if that was weird, but this is just who I am as a person. <laughs> thank you guys so much. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mia. All right, everyone. Thank you for joining us tonight. We'll see you next week. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. Thank you for joining us at the table for this interview with Mia Carella. Make sure you check out the description to find links to where you can follow her and read her beautiful pieces. If you are enjoying the podcast, make sure you follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. If you'd like to contact us, you can at tableforfivepodcast at gmail.com. We have new episodes every Monday. Join us next week as we start our back to school series. See you there. Bye.